Welcome to the Goalie Hacks podcast, the show dedicated to providing elite tips, hacks, and strategies to take your game to the next level, where we help you become an elite goaltender, one hack at a time. And now, here's your host, Mike Santaguida. Bang, bang. Welcome back to the show. Man, do we have an absolutely fire episode for you in store this week. We got Mark Stevenson, the Director of Player Performance for the NFL's Detroit Lions, on the show. And I was so pumped with the way the conversation went. You guys are going to love this one. Mark is a super off-the-radar kind of guy, but incredibly intelligent when it comes to maximizing athletic performance and recovery. He's worked with several Division I hockey teams, the U.S. National Strength and Conditioning Association, the Navy SEALs, and eventually moved on to work with the Detroit Lions in the NFL the last two seasons. We dive deep into strength and conditioning work relating to high-performance athletes and how you can get an edge on the ice. Mark's motto is recover smarter so you can train harder, and I know you guys won't be disappointed with the episode today. Shout out to my newest patron, Sawyer Russell, hailing from St. Stephen, New Brunswick, out in eastern Canada. Sawyer approached me about a month ago trying to take his game to the next level and to provide him with some career guidance. We've recently started to discuss his options going forward, and I'm happy to welcome him into my inner circle and to anoint him as a true hacker in the Goalie Hacks ecosystem. I'm looking forward to helping catapult his development and to put him on the appropriate track to help him reach his long-term goals of playing professional hockey one day. If you're interested in working much closer with me and getting the cheat codes to take your game to the next level, uh, to get your foot in the door, to work on some recruiting, figure out a career path, for just a few bucks a month, you can become a member of my inner circle and join my mentorship program where I offer tons of extra benefits to my community members in exchange for their support. Either hit me up directly or head to my page at patreon.com slash goalie hacks included in the show notes for more details on how to get started if you guys haven't seen yet i just released a 16 page ebook breaking down one of the main pillars of my success over my career and one tool that you can add to your toolbox to give you an edge over the competition on the ice so head to my website at goaliehacks.com to register to get this completely free resource and one of the biggest secrets of my career sent right to your inbox instantly as this is just one piece of completely free exclusive content out of many free ebooks i will be releasing for months to come shout out to our main sponsor neurotracker and if you guys are looking for more info on the experience people are having, just head to my Instagram page and check out the NeuroTracker story highlights and see for yourself what people are saying. If you're interested in getting started or want more details, whether you're a player or coach, younger or older, definitely send me a direct message on Instagram today after this episode to get the full details on what exactly we've been doing. To kick off our sponsorship, we're giving away a free subscription for the new NTX product, not available to the public yet, so stick around to the end of the show to get details on how to enter into this weekly giveaway. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. I know you guys are going to love the chat. Mark and I had today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Goalie Hacks podcast. I couldn't be happier today to be joined by Mark Stevenson, who's currently working with the NFL's Detroit Lions as the Director of Player Performance and also working with the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute on Sleep and Recovery. Mark has an extensive background working with athletes at the next level, as well as high-performance individuals in the military, including the Navy SEALs. After an internship at Holy Cross, he started as the men's hockey strength and conditioning coach at Providence College back in 96, eventually adding women's hockey before becoming the head strength coach for all sports. 
In 2004, he joined the Colorado College Tigers as the men's hockey head strength and conditioning coach. And during his time with Colorado, he was also the Human Performance Center Director of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He then moved on to work as the Director of Human Performance for the U.S. Navy SEALs for eight years in Colorado Springs before beginning his work as the Director of Player Performance with the Detroit Lions back in 2018. Mark, how are you doing, sir? Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to meet you, buddy. And and shout out to uh, Dr. Len Zykowski from episode six for hooking me up with Mark. And uh, Mark, thanks again for coming on the show as well. You know, when I saw your pictures, I, I just imagine you being like a super jack guy that was that used to lift and be super into working out. Was lifting and athletic performance sort of a hobby of yours growing up? Oh, uh, actually, it wasn't. I didn't get into it until after high school, um, more on the Olympic lifting side. So uh, it, was, right it was really a, a change for me, for sure. <laughs> I was always a husky kid, though. <laughs> That's all right. Well, I was happy to hear that, that uh, you know, your main focus is sleep. Uh, and we talked a bit prior to this recording, but um, but I'm personally, I personally have a keen interest in sleep and how it affects performance. And all my listeners will know, you know, they know that I've talked about it on other podcasts and I've, I've brought it up relatively often. And it's sort of been an area that's that that has been gone unscathed. People sort of uh, don't really know what to say. And, um, you know, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, you know, someone with who's a sleep and recovery expert, basically. Right. So, um, you know. Maybe we could just start off uh, by briefly telling my audience a bit about yourself, you know, where you've been and, and the work you've done. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, started out a long, long time ago, <laughs> about 31 years ago uh, in, nice. in the profession. Um, but basically, I started out as, a, as an athletic trainer working in a clinic, uh, doing rehabilitation. Uh, there, I was exposed to, obviously, from the sports injury side and working with some high schools. But I was exposed to some professional athletes that after their rehab, um, and they were local, after their rehab, um, just continue on doing strength and conditioning. So I really got the, the bug of actually doing strength and conditioning performance uh, versus rehab. So I slowly transitioned into that realm. And that led me to uh, uh, a good opportunity um, with uh, the College of Holy Cross in, in Worcester. And... Uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Oliver, had become the head strength coach there and uh, just gave me an opportunity to, to get in there and learn how to work with teams. You know, uh, in rehab, you work with individuals. So it was, it's a whole different perspective. Um, from there, you know, just started moving on to, you know, working with, um, obviously, uh, I'm from Rhode Island and, and New England area, so hockey's our big thing here. Yeah. Um, had some great um, – Great mentors uh, growing up in the profession, you know, with the uh, likes of Mike Boyle and Vern Gambetta, and just progressed from there. And, you know, got into Providence College, working with their hockey program um, over the years, you know, took on men's and women's hockey, and then uh, eventually, like uh, you said, became the head strength coach. But I got, then I had an opportunity to, to leave, which was really hard because I had, it was such a good program at Providence. They treat me uh, – very, very well, mm -hmm. but to go to Colorado Springs, work at the National Strength and Conditioning Association, which included working with Colorado College men's hockey, 
um, as well as the Broadmoor Figure Skating Club. So it was kind of like, oh, I got to do hockey and figure skating, which was a, a challenge in itself. <laughs> um, but during my time, you know, working with uh, those folks, learning, it really came down to, and, and I'll get more into this, but into analyzing performance. So how do I address the needs of a of a figure skater, a pair figure skater, an ice dancer versus a, you know, a winger or a goalie, you know, in hockey yeah. and, and really get into it. So it took a lot of uh, um, analyzing and so forth. Of course, being at the National Strength Conditioning Association, um, that's, you know, that's the flagship. So I had access to a ton of uh, exceptional resources and, and researchers and coaches out, out in the community. So that really, uh, really developed me uh, big time there for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, um, I'll talk a little bit, you know, about going into the tactical world because there was a crossover with that, working with Colorado Springs uh, Police SWAT, um, which they came to, to us to say, hey, you know, we, we test these folks. How do, what are we looking for? Is this test valid? Things like that. Yeah. As we got into it, that was the easy part from uh, one standpoint. But as we got into it, we learned like, you know, the movements are similar, but um, the outcomes are different, things like that. So we started developing uh, programs, strength and conditioning programs with them and, and took them on, um, uh, you know, on a daily basis. And then eventually turned into really looking deep into what it takes to be that type of a, of a police officer. Mm -hmm. At the same time, somebody from 10 Special Forces Group at Forest Carson, which was, you know, right outside the, the door from us as well, um, was a Nebraska uh, grad, uh, play, uh, participated in track field in Nebraska, and the, the, the founder of the NSCA was from Nebraska, Boyd Epley. So he was familiar with the organization, popped over, and then we took his team in and we started training him. So that's how the tactical part started. Yeah. And I was split between the two, hockey and, and tactical. But then I had this opportunity I couldn't refuse uh, – working with one of the special mission units in the Navy SEALs. Um, so that's when I, uh, you know, uprooted there and moved my family to Virginia Beach um, and worked there. And then that's where the research really started developing and, and, and coming in where we looked at sleep and recovery and so forth. And then, um, again, uh, a friend of mine um, who was you know, previously a defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots, uh, earned the job at uh, Detroit Lions as the head, head coach and asked me to join him in 2018. Um, I joined him. So the past two seasons, I've been with the Detroit Lions as the uh, director of player performance. This season, I've, I've transitioned a little bit because I want to get back into the military. Mm -hmm. And the, the Detroit Lions organization uh, has been exceptional from the head coach, the GM, to the Ford family and allowed me to actually work remotely focus on the sports science for them and be able to uh, give my time working with the military through the Rockefeller uh, Neuroscience Institute. So that kind of takes me, uh, takes us up to where I am today. So I'm just curious, you know, what did you love so much about the, the strength and conditioning side of, of athletics over the rehab side so much? How come you wanted to get into it more? The way I really transitioned was now, don't get me wrong, rehab is great. You see, you know, you get these injured folks, you know, from all, you know, from athletes to, you know, regular folks and you get them better and that's satisfactory. But what I saw working with 
athletes on the strength and conditioning side and the performance side was it, it's it's somewhat um, nobody's at the top yet, right? We're as a human being, we're trying to get there, and I just right. it just it just really amazed me on how resilient and adaptable the human body is, mm-hmm. and how you push it in different ways, and 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 as I learn more. Um, you know, academically and experience-wise, it just became more fascinating and fascinating. So I got more satisfaction uh, of doing that, of trying to improve performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's really where I, I kind of transitioned from the rehab to the uh, just the main performance side of the house. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to sort of start maybe right from the beginning um, you know, go right into your time at, at Providence. And you mentioned prior to the call that you focused on being the best conditioned team because those teams typically in the third period uh, usually have better outcomes. Uh, I was just curious, do you still think to this day that that philosophy holds true? Well, I do. Um, and because, you know, the, the game is three periods, right? So, um, I mean, for the most part, um, that third period is a, can be a very uh, determining period for, for the outcome of a game. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my time at Providence, you know, when I got to Providence, I, I had a uh, head coach who was very um, cerebral and it was Paul Pooley. And he was, you know, he was amazing in the way he thought about things, which, you know, connected with me because that's kind of the way I look at things. So we would sit down and um, discuss, you know, different things that he saw that I saw from a from performance standpoint, physical standpoint. And, you know, traditionally, you know, hockey was, you know, run, you know, go out, run five miles, you know, for your conditioning and, and so forth. And that this time, this was, you know, mid nineties where, you know, it was like, well, you know, VO2 versus no VO2 type uh, training aerobic and anaerobic. And, you know, as we started breaking things down, um, you know, we worked more on the anaerobic side, which at the beginning I thought was, okay, we got to attack that. And so we were able to increase our speed, speed on the ice and, and so forth over some, you know, some time, a couple of years. But um, then, you know, not realizing where the way we condition them in those short terms, we actually improved their VO2. So nowadays we know that we can improve VO2 through high intensity training. Um, but back then it was just either you ran long distance or you didn't do it. So, uh, uh, but it, it came to a point where I'll be honest with you, I, I forget what mm-hmm. season it was. It was maybe second, third season I was there. It was after the season we sat down, uh, coach Pooley and I, and he's like, Hey, listen, I, I get, you know, cause we were still doing the five mile, but it, then it was an event versus a test, but he's like, Hey, I get it, but I need them to be better at the five mile. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, he's the head coach. And then his <laughs> second statement to me was, I need them to be faster. So I was like, okay. I said, and then I explained to him the physiology. I was like, you know, we can get faster. We can get better at the five mile, but we can't do both effectively. How, you know, what do you, what's more important to you? Yeah. And you know, Long story short, it, it really came down. Hey, I want them faster, but then we we increased our interval um, intensity training 
to accomplish the, the fitness level that we were getting from the five mile and then getting the speed and the reaction and yeah. short change of direction that we wanted from the, the speed work. So, uh, and it wasn't overnight, obviously this was, you know, trial and error, learning from other people, yeah. gaining more experience, but over time, and then we found that, um, you know, we were better conditioned than most teams in the third period and, you know, for the most part. And that's when, our, you know, our success started improving from there. When I went to Colorado college, um, now we're on an Olympic sheet. Right. <laughs> so big difference for, you know, working at, but I still went with that philosophy. So, you know, working with, uh, you know, coach Owens at the time, yeah. um, he was all about it. And we really focused on that and we saw success with being better conditioned than most of our, uh, opponents in the third period. Um, so I, I still believe that's true, but I also believe a lot of teams are doing that. So at some point it becomes an equalizer. <laughs> Yeah. So what did that exactly did that look like where, you know, because obviously um, two two kind of different types of heart uh, variability, right? The five mile versus uh, short and quick. Right. What did what did you, what exactly did you guys do to sort of accomplish both? So we really um, shifted, especially by the time I got to Colorado College, um, we sh- shifted to more high intensity interval um, training in the conditioning realm, not necessarily in the weight room. But uh, so, you know, today it seems like everybody's doing it anyway. So you already know about, but back then we weren't doing a lot of that, you know, on field work. Yeah. And then we focused more on um, things that they would do pertaining to the ice. So our agility drills would be distance and mimic more of what they would do for close quarter. And then when we transferred on the ice, um, we still, did that so we did conditioning on the ice that resembled that work to rest ratios and so forth and to a point where at colorado um we were able to you know use heart rate monitors and stuff on the ice and you know i had access to uh, better technology by that time yeah so um so basically you know we went with that concept of you know hot you know interval training to improve vo2 and fitness levels because at the end of the day um, it does come true that a higher VO2, a higher fitness level you have, the better both in speed, recovery, and performance you'll be able to do. Uh, but how you get that fitness level doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and run five, six miles unless that's your sport. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I love how you 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 keep bringing up the term VO two. Uh, just because honestly, I don't think it gets talked about enough. And I actually just released an entire ebook on on sort of the the type of training that I would do on the ice for goalies to increase your VO two max, right? And you know that was sort of an area that I um, tune in on back when I was over ten years ago. When I was I'm twenty seven now, so that was eleven years ago. And, um, it's sort of something that I used to help me slow the game down and something I used that me and my dad would talk about same thing in the third period. That's where most people fail. Everybody's good when they're fresh. Right. right. Um, but how sharp are you come that third period when everybody's tired, everybody's been playing a 60 minute game. Right. Yeah. Um, but pertaining specifically to conditioning regarding a player versus goaltender, should goalies be doing different kinds of, of conditioning work over players? And what exactly would that look like? Well, you know, the the foundation is similar. They don't have to do necessarily 
everything different. Yeah. But when we get when we start getting down to the the close we call close sided drills, you know, the cone drills and stuff, that's where it differs. Um, because we want to start them to mimic movements that they're gonna more likely do. So a goaltender versus, you know, a centerman, you know, it's gonna be a big difference on uh, how they do yeah. things. So we would split up at that point, but some of the, you know, tempo based type of running or sprinting, you know, would be similar um, as everybody else. But when it came to on ice, then that's, you know, obviously it was a lot different because we really closed off and just their work to rest ratio was um, different because they're not, they're not playing shifts. Yeah. So, you know, can we mimic a, a barrage, you know, as far as time goes, things of that nature. So it's really breaking down, you know, not necessarily the game, but also the individual. So, you know, so we can get it more precise to the, the goaltenders we have. What type of goaltender are they? What type of, you know, body type? So it's yeah. more specific to them. Now with goalies, it's easier because you only have, you know, a couple of them versus, you know, 20-something players. But, uh, you know, so it is a little bit different, but VO2 is VO2, right? So you both need it. Yeah. Just how you get it would be a little different. Yeah. The other thing I'd like to even just jump on that VO2, like you said, you know, when you get tired, everybody's tired, you get sharper. But it's also it's the mental component, right? Yeah. And especially for well, it's for everybody, you know, decision making, but goaltenders, if they're fatigued and tired, yeah, they're also mentally fatigued and tired. Yeah. So VO two helps delay that central nervous system fatigue as well. Yeah. I love that. I love that you just said that. <laughs> because I uh I had been doing a lot of research a long time ago. And it basically was stating that uh, when you're under when you're under either physical or emotional stress, um, the prefrontal cortex, which is the area associated with decision making, actually sort of gets interrupted or cut off from the rest of the the brain, and that's sort of why, from my understanding, is why people make mistakes. Like people, oh, why did I let that go in? Oh, I don't know how I did that. Is that is that sort of accurate? What I'm alluding to? Yeah, it is. Um, we call it amygdala hijacking because um, the amygdala will start taking over and it won't let the information go anywhere. And it will say, I'm going to, I'm in charge now. So we're just going to react. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so that's when poor decision-making starts happening because now it's emotional decision-making. Yeah. Instead of that executive function, like you were talking about with that prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm already loving the way this conversation's going. Uh, I'm sorry, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that there was a time, um, probably in the 90s, um, that I was anti-VO2 for hockey. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, like, there, you know, there's obviously a lot of strength coaches were like that, and I was like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. We're not endurance, that. you know, come on. Yeah. And, you know, so listen, you know, I've learned from mistakes. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I it took a long time to get where I'm at and it took a lot of uh, yeah. experience and trial and error. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, so what, why, why in, in initially were people so against that? Maybe you can dive a bit into the, where we were then versus where we are now with what we know. Well, I think a lot of the work done in the, the literature at that time, uh, one was done on marathon runners, uh, you know, right. triathletes. And everybody was equating VO2. We all were equating VO2 um, with athletes because that's what the norms are on. And then, you know, maybe we do VO2 testing for our 
hockey players on a bike or whatever, but well, we're not skating where it doesn't matter. Or, you know, we're, I don't know that. I think a lot of strength coaches at that time were more of the power including myself. So listen, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, heavy guy. I'm not running, you know, a marathon. So, you know, nobody else should, you know, that type of thing. So we, <laughs> we had that mentality and it's the weight room, it's this, it's that. And, you know, again, you know, we've, we've evolved from a, a profession as well, but it's, I think that was part of it. Yeah. Um, and we, I think just the, the, there's so much emphasis in the eighties and nineties on, long distance running triathlons that as, you know, a power, uh, sport, like whether it's football or hockey, you know, just want to separate ourselves from that. And I think that's, that's my opinion. I think that's how we kind of were against it in that sense. Yeah. Well, I think just like anything, um, you know, science has come a long way in the last 30 years, even in the last 10 years. Right. So, yeah, uh, I mean, because the only way we could do VO2 was you got to go out and run, you know, 10, 12 miles. Right. And so that just, you know, counterproductive for what we're trying to do in hockey. So we were yeah. just uh, it's anti VO2 versus anti long distance running. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I understand. Well, you know, you, you then you had to Colorado College and, and you sort of got into it a little bit. But during your time there, you had an opportunity to work with the National Strength and Conditioning Association, you know, what was probably the biggest surprise during your years there? Um, I, I think, you know, I was afforded a lot more resources. So yeah. it opened my eyes to a lot of different views. And, you know, I, I, I would interact with a lot of different professionals, um, you know, from great you know, researchers, but they were great in their area. Yeah. Right. So I would pick from each different area and I learn and try to apply some stuff. And I, and, you know, somewhat created my own way to do it and, and using other people's uh, concepts and ideas. And I think the biggest surprise for me was how, um, how resilient the body is. Yeah. As, a, as, as human beings, as a species, that we can endure a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. So, I mean, I think that was the biggest eye opener there. And the biggest um, opportunity for me was just being allowed to, to interact with those people and those people sharing um, their their experiences and their research with, with me. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you said that, how, you know, resilient the body is. And um, I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, Peak by Anders Ericsson. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, yes. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. read that. And yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, there's a good, that's a great foundational premise right there. He gives a yeah. good look at that. In my yeah. Opinion. The gift of, uh, he talks about this gift that, that as people, as humans, we have something in us called homeostasis, which is the, the tendency to want to be um, at your equilibrium. But he also talks about how we have this gift of adaptability. And it's sort of what you're alluding to there, how resilient the body is. And when we sort of bend the body, put stress on it, the body adapts and rebuilds in a way. So that way, um, you know, when we come across that challenge again, it can overcome it. And, um, you know, I think that people at home and a lot of, you know, we sort of hit that wall of like when we're doing, 
you know, sprints or whatever it is, we're on that sixth or seventh round of, of suicide runs. That's when you slow down when really that's when you're hitting your peak and the, the harder you drive through that and the further you go and, and the more attention to detail you have when you're sort of hit that, that total fatigue level, you're, you're showing your body and your brain that it can go there. And when you go there, it makes those adjustments and adapts to get there. Does that sort of make sense? It does. Cause I guarantee you when everybody's at that six, seven rep of that sprint that they're just dragging and everybody's kind of slowing yeah. down like, Oh, they're just fatigued. I guarantee if, if somebody uh, blew an air horn behind you and you weren't looking, you, you'd have the energy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah you mentally, you're, you're quitting. Your body isn't quitting. You think it is. And, and, you know, that will, you know, and that's, that's basically how they, uh, they view it when, when you go to uh, special forces training, whether it's Navy SEALs or Ranger or Green Beret or whatever, um, it's showing you, you have more in the tank. You just got to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get more into that uh, a bit later, but because you were in Colorado, um, you started working in Colorado Springs in the tactical world with SWAT officers on call. You know, what was maybe the biggest aha moment for you while you were studying those officers? Well, you know, um, I, I, th- I think the biggest thing that, that really kind of launched me into the direction was as, you know, we've, we've done a lot of things, you know, strength conditioning program forum, and, and obviously they got better because they didn't have the resources before. So, you know, that's, that's an easy win. Um, and, you know, we reduced their uh, workers comp dramatically um, because, you know, they got fitter. But aside from that, I mean, we knew that was going to happen. Yeah. But um, as we got into the heart rate variability stuff on my end, um, you know, as you know, we had them wired up uh, as they were out on their you know, their calls. You know, whether it's a serving a warrant or a drug bust or whatever. And the, it, it was funny because you have um, you know you have a, 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 a lieutenant in charge that's not in the the van with them. You know, he's obviously right. over there. But then there's a sergeant in charge of the team that's in the van, in the stack, and making the final call. And they had two sergeants, but only one is, is, is in the role of sergeant, you know, at a time. Yeah. So looking at that, we could see, you know, from experienced uh, uh, SWAT officers to lesser experienced SWAT officers, heart rates changed, you know, they were lower in the, the more experienced as you would expect. Yeah. But it was the sergeants. When they were acting as the sergeant, their heart rate was a lot higher during uh, the event. Yeah. Uh, when the event finished, they dropped real, you know, down low pretty good. But when they weren't the, the sergeant, they were just in the stack. They were they were like at a low heart rate for them. Yeah. And, and that proved over and over, you know, with them switching on and off. So that was pretty interesting um, at that point. And of course, the technology wasn't even up and running uh, very well back then either. So, um, you know, but that's what we had and we could look at. But that prompted me to look further into different things, um, you know, especially when I got to the Navy SEALs, yeah. um, where we really looked, started looking at the brain as part of this whole process. Yeah. Now, how exactly do you think that 
you know, sort of translates to sports and, and what that means for athletes? Well, I mean, it, it translates uh, easily in that sense because uh, we're going to performance is performance, yeah. right? So you have to, you know, like in hockey, you have, uh, you know, your performance on the ice, you know, if you're a defenseman or, you know, a forward or a winger or whatever your, your position is, or in, in separately a goaltender. So, you, you know, you can calculate your performance based on certain things there. Um, and, and so in different sports, you have some metrics or statistics that help you. In the tactical world, they don't have that. Uh, but what happens is, like you, you know, said, so the translation is really during the time of the the competition. That alone is, you know, are you too stressed? Are you stressed enough? Mm. Or aroused enough to perform? Yeah. And then afterwards, can you come down? So, like, if you're, you know, a defenseman when you get off the ice and you're sitting on the bench waiting for your next shift, can you, can your body, you know, as you know, uh, you know, as you said before, can we get back to your baseline before you go back on for your next shift? Right. Right. So, so that, that's where it translates into sports. Right. Right. And now after your work with, um, you know, in, in Colorado with SWAT officers, you moved on to working with the Naval special warfare, which is the Navy SEALs. And that must have been just an incredible experience. Um, and you talked about things like uh, better recovery means better game readiness. And you were tasked with trying to figure out, you know, how to sustain these guys for long periods of time. So what were some of your first findings surrounding around recovery and why proper recovery is so important? Well, you know, at, at that time, you know, we, as we were looking you know, at things, like you said, you know, the, the mission task was – how do we sustain these uh, operators for a long period of time? You know, how do we get from five years to 15 years? Because um, unlike sports, we, you know, it's a longer period of time. But if I train you up to be this special operator, it, you know, the investment financially is, is tremendous, right? Right. And if you leave in five years, I can't get that back. So what, what it happens in, in, you know, if you look at, you know, um, the, the whole process of becoming an expert and so forth, it takes a lot of time on task to become an es- expert. So in the SEAL community, they figure um, it's an average of about five years before you really become a full-on expert and then move, moving on. Yeah. Um, you know, same in, you know, like in SWAT, you know, four to five years, depending on how much exposure time on task you have. So if you leave at five years, I'm starting over every time. So I'm mm-hmm. never really getting that expertise. And I'm not, um, you know, from a taxpayer standpoint, we're not getting our money's worth. Yeah. So how do we ex- extend that life where, because I don't have to replace you right away. Right. And then you can pass on your experience to that next expert coming up and they become a better expert and so on and so on. So the, the plan of succession. So that was kind of how we had to look at it. And, you know, we're looking at strength and conditioning because that, you know, that's where we lived and it's, you know, and if you look back, I mean, what's the, there's nothing new in, in strength and conditioning over the past, you know, whatever century. I mean, 
it's gravity and physics. So, <laughs> you yeah. know, that's the easy part. But what we found was like, and, and believe me, it's not like we're so smart. We found this, we found that. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you exactly the first time was I had one, you know, SEAL come to me and say, hey, um, you know, when I was in BUDS, this was a very experienced SEAL at the time. So he was in BUDS a long time ago. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I used to go to this place and float, uh, you know, on my own on the weekends to recover. And it worked really well. We should be looking at that. And I'm like, this is because, you know, everybody comes up with all these things. I'm like, yeah, oh, you're kidding me. So, all right, but that's my job. Right. So <laughs> you know, looking at it, it's like, ah, oh, you know, looking at the empirical research, not the marketing. Yeah. And this is probably 2000 and I don't know, uh, 10, maybe. Yeah. And then we said, okay, we'll buy a couple. And just for guys to use, we still weren't looking at that. Yeah. And then guys started reporting that, hey, you know what? I slept eight hours last night. Now, the average sleep time for, for that community um, in special operations, whether it's the SEALs or Green Berets or Rangers or, or Marines, is, it's really about four hours. Wow. And we don't even know if that's even quality sleep. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, it's just high-stress environment, yeah. high-paced environment. Well, these guys are saying like you know six eight hours of sleep they're getting and and so forth so we started looking into a little bit deeper it's like hey we need to look at this what's happening in the body so we started exploring what's really happening physiologically then neuro, you know then we looked at the psyche and and so forth over the years and of course we had employed you know other experts to help us with you know the air force research lab and you know yeah. darpa and, and you know, all the government agencies to help us start looking in that area. And what we found was, you know, from a recovery standpoint, um, you know, because again, the, the biggest measure for us is heart rate variability, which measures our autonomic nervous system. Yeah. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. So that was telling us that they were getting back to balance. So we looked at other, you know, technology, some good, some work, some didn't work. Um, and we'll continue looking into them that way, you know, from, uh, the light therapy, the near infrared light therapy to yeah. you know, the cryo and blood flow restriction, things like that. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and we're just continuing looking into it. Yeah. And how effective do you think? Cause, um, I mean, I haven't done the cryo, uh, but there are some other things that I've done. I've done like a hyperbaric chamber, um, you know, which, which has worked, which honestly was worked really good for me when I was playing pro in, in Tennessee, the last couple of years, we had access to one. And, um, you know, I, I would, it's, and you talk about sleep and sort of the quality of sleep and stuff like that. You know, we would get back from road trips at like 4 30 AM and, you know, you didn't really get to sleep on the bus until two. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's Monday morning and you only got like six, eight hours of sleep or something like that. So I would need to, I would need to go to the chamber to sort of replenish that, that oxygen. And it would pick me up right away. It would get rid of that sort of, uh, that rundown feeling that you get when you don't get good sleep. And it's affected me more into my older age as well. Um, but how important, how effective do you think that some of these modalities are like cryo and, uh, hyperbaric and stuff like that? Well, some of them are very effective. Um, some are not as effective. And, you know, when we look at what we call apparently healthy individuals, like like the scenario that you, you talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, 
hockey and, and basketball are really difficult, especially uh, in the pro level because of the the backpack travel. You know, it's it, and you play at night. You know, that's not your body's circadian rhythm, right? Yeah. So we're have to go to bed. Um, you know, at one a.m. instead of nine at nine p.m. You know what I mean? So so there's a lot of different things. So things like flow, um, the hyperbaric chamber and stuff um, are, are, are effective with those things. The, the, there's not a lot of literature on the hyperbaric chamber for recovery yeah. in this, in that realm. Um, there's good on like bone healing, uh, mm. tissue repair, burns, things like that, but not on apparently healthy individuals. Mm. So, um, so we're still looking into that. The only, the one caution with the hyperbaric is there are um, indicators that would say you shouldn't use it because it could be dangerous. Mm. Uh, versus like some that. of the other ones, there's there's not a lot of contraindications. Why is that? Yeah, so you just have to look at the modality, what the contraindications are, and make sure you don't have them. And some some devices don't have any or very little contraindications. Um, but, you know, it's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't use it. It's just you yeah. just need to be more uh, vigil about, you know, what you do and how you use it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Things like that. But they, they can be very, very effective. Um, you know, it's again, it's a it's a it's a biohack, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, if we can't get it, I can't tell you, hey, you know, it's after a game, you're riding in a bus. Okay. You, you need to go get eight hours, nine hours of sleep. And you just, you know, do the sleep hygiene stuff. That's not going to work because mm -hmm. we've already thrown you off your circadian rhythm and all that stuff. So you, you, you might need those interventions. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean you always should use interventions, but in this case, you don't have another option. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for people at home, maybe avoiding proper recovery or, or maybe don't have access to some of these modalities, you know, what does sort of proper recovery look like to you after a workout or a game or, or whatever you're doing that causes stress? You know, what do you suggest, um, you know, people do to be as efficient as possible with their recovery to help them be better performers? Well, I'll tell you the, the, the no cost solution to that. Um, yeah. People aren't really, it's not exciting. But mindfulness, meditation, mm. uh, things like that have been proven time and time again in the literature. As, as unsexy as it is, yeah. it works. And it's not costing you anything. Now, what I will tell you, it is a skill, right? Uh, I can't just say, hey, go meditate and you go hard. <laughs> but there's different ways to meditate, um, yeah. if you will, um, that – you can do right away. So, and I'll give you an example that everybody knows they just might not associate with. It's like, Hey, I just want to put my headphones on. I want to listen to my music. What happens when you listen to that music? Yeah. You know, and if it's before uh, a competition, you probably have a different genre of music that you listen to. But if it's afterwards, what music that you enjoy that gets you relaxed, that's a start. That's a no cost, you know, a uh, solution. Um, and then, you know, if you can meditate or mindfulness, being in that moment, reflection, self-reflection, um, could be reflection of the competition, all that stuff that is helpful. 
and it does help promote uh, better quality sleep as well. Uh, but it's not it's not a light switch. You're not going to turn that on and then yeah. everything hunky dory. You know, it's, for some people, it could be you do that while you're stretching. You, you can do it while you're doing some other things. But it gets your brain into that um, that mindfulness state where meditation mm-hmm. becomes more effective. And, and for some people, you know, if they're religious, they can pray because that is a form of meditation as well. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways you can go about it. What what's good for you? If I tell you like, hey, just go and do a mantra, om, and things like that, you yeah. might be like, screw that. I don't. That doesn't work. <laughs> I but think a lot of people are like that, right? Right. If you put headphones on and listen to, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I'll date myself and say ACDC, but that might be a lot. Well, what kind of effect does that have? Because I actually personally, uh, I stumbled upon uh, when I was in university at the University of Vermont, we worked with a sports psychologist and he sort of introduced me to meditation. And um, I think everybody's sort of got to find their happy medium with the practice a bit. And, and obviously, like you said, it's a skill that you need to work on. But, you know, what kind of effect does that have? Like, what does the literature sort of say about, um, I guess, what the numbers say of, of how effective that is to, in terms of recovery? Well, I, I mean, the literature is, there's a lot of good literature out there um, on the effectiveness of, of meditation from chronic um, conditions, especially, you know, obviously it's more, you'd find more of that literature in the psychology um, realm, but, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, things like uh, even disease states like uh, pain, like with rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, MS or things like that. So it's shown a lot of uh, effectiveness in what we call perceived, uh, uh, like a perceived scale. Like I feel better, you know, when they do mm-hmm. these uh, analog visual analog testing, they all perform better for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you've been working with the Detroit Lions, you know, since 2018. And when it comes to sports science and performance, you know, what is probably the most effective thing that, you've implemented with the team that those guys are doing at the next level to stay ahead of the competition? Uh, I, I think the most effective thing we, we, we were able to do um, when the new regime came in there uh, under Coach Patricia, because he's a big, big proponent of this um, type of stuff. And, you know, when, when I was at the, the command with the Navy SEALs, we had a leadership exchange with uh, a few teams and New England being one of them. And so they, they were able to take on some of those recovery things, um, you know, and start experimenting with Matt New England. So when Matt came over to take over at the Detroit Lions, he wanted to bring that plus. Uh, so the biggest thing we were able to do to, for those players was we built an actual recovery suite that, we had float tanks. We had uh, the uh, near-infrared light therapy. We had the cryo, nice. cold tubs, hot tubs. We had in-house uh, massage therapy and stretch therapy um, all in the suite, yeah. in, in, including, you know, the, the traditional Normatex, yeah. um, E-STEM and all that stuff. But we contained it in one area and also gave them the resources and opportunity to use them um, throughout, you know, throughout the day and night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, 
obviously those are some big buck uh, modality items, right? Sort of yeah. tough for, uh, um, you know, but I'm just curious, should hockey players and, and football players be recovering differently or, or sport to sport is recovery relatively consistent with what works best regarding rolling out and stretching and some things like that that are, are free for people to use? Yeah, I think, you know, um, one of the traditional things for hockey is the ice plunge, right? Yeah. Um, what I can tell you about that is, uh, especially for let's for hockey specifically. So one of the things that the ice plunge does from the the brain standpoint is it actually induces what we call the parasympathetic state, that relaxation state. So I know when you're in there, you're like, really? Oh. Does it really? Right. It's, it's amazing because you would think the opposite. Oh, yeah, I, I certainly do. I do them often. I did them like every day in college, uh, ice bath. <laughs> yeah. And I would I would argue with because um, I'm an athletic trainer by trade. Yeah. As, you know, even before I became a strength coach. But even with the trainers, they're like, oh, there's no research that this really works and blah, blah. And, you know, it's an anti-inflammatory. Well, we don't want to call it like so. Yeah, but it works. And, and when we find out now, the research is there. When we measure the autonomic nervous system um, through heart rate variability, we're yeah. finding out that it actually promotes a parasympathetic state. Wow. And uh, so to that point, you know, even though it was traditionally done, it's still a very effective tool yeah. that is a low cost because you can fill up the tub at the hotel and throw yeah. ice in it or something like that. Yeah. Now, but to your, your question specifically, you know, no, it depends on your performance, right? Mm -hmm. So I want, you should recover after you perform, whether it's training or, or competition, how, how long, how much, and what modality that could depend. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a, a defenseman that, you know, whatever has to do more shifts than normal because of, you know, something in a game, yeah. penalties or whatever, you know, you know, if, if you have a game where you're, you're on the, um, you know, power, uh, if you're on the power play, your, your forwards and stuff might have to do more recovery, but right. on the opposite, if you're giving up a lot and, you, and you're always on the uh, man down situation, then, you know, your defenseman might have to do a lot more strategic recovery after a game or if it's an overtime period, yeah. you know, so situational, will dictate that, but as far as performance is performance, right? So if it's a, if your perceived exertion is high, then you need to uh, address that with uh, more recovery. Yeah. And what do you think is probably, you know, working with the lines, um, you know, the most common misconception that uh, amateur athletes have regarding strength and conditioning and recovery that the pros understand just a lot better. But the, the biggest thing is mindset. It, it's a mindset. It's, it's not about um, going and lifting weights. It's not about going and doing conditioning to be better at, you know, on the field or whatever. It's just part of the, the game. Or it's not about like, oh, now I got to do this for recovery because it's on my checklist. Yeah. It's the mindset of I need not just take care of my body. It's about sustainment. How long can I have a career? Mm. When you are an amateur athlete, your career never ends. When you're a professional athlete, you only have X number of years yeah. to make your to, to succeed and make your money, right? That's yeah. that's your employment. That's gonna go away real quick, no matter how good you are, right? 
some can make it long, a lot longer, which is great. But in the grand scheme of things, they're not out there for 20, 30 years. Yeah. As an athlete. Yeah. So, you know, most of the time, like in the NFL, I mean, you're, if you make your second contract, you know, you're about four years that you're going to be able to really make your mark, maybe eight mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. uh, for the most part on the average. Yeah. Same with hockey. I mean, you're up and down and, you know, you could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. So your, your availability is your biggest asset because I don't care how good you are. If you're not available because you're hurt all the time, yeah. you know, the organization can't use you after a while. They're just not going to renew your contract. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So availability so durability equals availability. Mm, I like that. That, that one's Coach Patricia. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's, I want credit for it. it's it's funny that you mentioned that just because uh, it was it was uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm 27 now, and uh, the year I was turning 25, so that when I was 24, turning 25. That was when everything really that was the year I went pro, actually. And that was sort of when everything started to catch up with me of like not eating good, not sleeping good, you know, um, not recovering after practices. It's like your recovery slows down a bit and you don't realize really how important that recovery aspect is, I, I think, until you get a little bit older and the body slows down a bit like you alluded to. Right. Right. Um, but I, I got to ask before we get into some of the neurology stuff. Um, because uh, you, you brought up sleep a bit and I'm a big advocate of a pregame nap. And I was just curious, you know, if you think that's a good idea, uh, how long before game time should you take one? How long should it be? Is it effective? You know, what's sort of your take on that? Uh, so, you know, the, is it, in the literature, um, and I always refer to the literature because, and I'll tell you when it's my opinion or yeah. my experience versus what the, the science is saying. And it's kind of 50, 50 in the science right now. Yeah. And I, I think just because, um, access to the right demographics, I think it's different for every you know population. Yeah. So when it comes to sports and, and the thing with napping is, you know, the good part about napping is we can sort of, you know, use that at, i mean it's currency right so we yeah. can pay, pay back that debt a little bit um but at the same time nap is not a substitution for getting the proper amount of sleep now the one problem with napping is you get into the the, the sleep cycles if you have to wake up in the wrong part of the sleep cycle when you're not in the awake cycle um that makes you initially a lot worse off yeah. performance wise, groggy and stuff like that. So you don't want to nap up to the point where, um, okay, I got to get up and then get going. Now, you know, game day is a little different because, you know, you're going to be woken up, you know, at the hotel, you're going to have to get to uh, the bus or, you, or meal, the bus, yeah. all that stuff. So you're still hours away from competition. So you'd be okay there. Yeah. But um, what you want to do is think of it like, you know, 15-minute cycles. Got it. And this is just generic. I mean, it's not specific to 15 minutes. But yeah. you don't want you if you're going to set your alarm, make sure you're doing it like either 15, 30, 45, or 60, you know, things like that. Yeah. Try not to be in between those too much because you might be in, an, in not going through your awake cycle. Mm. Now – 
again, that's just very general because, you know, you could be, it could be 10 minutes for some individuals, uh, but there's no way to know unless you um, monitor your sleep uh, that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed a bit for me over the years. Sometimes I do, uh, you know, I, I, and this was something I can't remember what year this was actually, it might've been 2011. I went to like the USHL combine and somebody's sort of talking about sleep and they're like, yeah, you sleep an hour and a half sleep cycles. So what I started doing was either having a 30 minute nap to be super quick, or I would, you know, time it, my nap would be like an hour 45. So that way I could sort of get that hour and a half in. And that seemed to work well for me over the, over the, the last decade plus really. I mean, I've used it for a long time, but there are still some days where like it doesn't work out well and then you're kind of in a bad spot. So I usually like to nap, you know, uh, early on, like between 12 and one. So that way that sort of gives you, you know, if you wake up around two, that gives you plenty of time before a seven o'clock game to wake up. Right. 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 Um, now, prior to the call, you said you were very interested in the neurology and, and the psychology side behind recovery, and you've alluded to the parasympathetic uh, nervous system. But what exactly did you mean when you said that, and, and why does that spark your curiosity? Well, um, the, the more you know, I learned about the effects of recovery, and you know, as we kept peeling back the onion, and again, we're still peeling it back, but um, you know many people I work with and have collaborated with and so forth, what we found, you know, because it wasn't just me, is that it, it's the brain, the brain is, is controlling everything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very selfish organ. Um, it's self-preservation. <laughs> That's why when we go into shock where all the blood goes to the center, yeah. then it goes to the brain. Um, you know, when it comes to sugar, the brain wants the sugar, it's going to take it first. You know, so it's a very selfish organ, right? Um, well, it's the same. It's it's what we've come up with is we have to take a brain first approach. The brain is affecting that physiology. So, um, you know, what I've come my, my kind of my philosophy is when I approach these things is the brain's perception is is your body's reality. Mm. Okay, so if if you know, because people say, well, why are you so stressed? That's not stressful. This is the, like, it, it's all relative. Yeah. If, if that if that person's brain perceives that, you know, the, whatever, the dog over there is a threat, even if it's not, the, the physiology is going to respond to it's a threat. Right. So, you know, they're going to get anxious and heart rate, respiration, all that stuff. So all those physiological things that are important for performance are all controlled by the brain's perception of the situation, yeah. whether you manufacture it or it sees it from a you know visual stimulus or whatever. So that that's what was fascinating um, to me as you know that comes more and more in light and you know and again back to you know because I was like if you you know 15, 20 years ago if you said meditation to me I you know I'd be like yeah. No, that's a hit, you know, <laughs> um, and it's like, it's, it's really changed my perspective. Like I can't deny the science, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, um, and so your brain's perception is your body's reality. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we mentioned that you've been working closely with, um, the Rockefeller uh, neuroscience Institute, and you said your expertise is in heart variability 
and the measure of the autonomic nervous system. Maybe you can just put that in layman terms for everyone. And what does that mean for us as athletes? Sure. So, you know, your autonomic nervous system, that's, that's really what's controlling, um, you know, your body without you thinking about it. Right. So it's automatic, yeah. you know, being autonomic. Um, and there's the, one of the major pathways is the vagus nerve that goes from the, you know, from your brain all the way into, you know, your intestines. So it's, it's transmitting signals. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, you know, um, you know, the fight or flight, um, you know, that, that stress situation, well, you don't need to digest food, right? You, you don't need to um, do certain things. You need blood going to your muscles so you can get away or you can defend yourself. So the physiology changes and that's transmitted through the vagus nerve. Um, so heart rate variability, what it does, it measures, we take the measurements between each um, consecutive heartbeat. And when you're relaxed or, you know, let's say balanced, it varies a lot. You know, so like if we say, you know, if you look at a heart monitor, it says 60 beats per minute. Well, that's not consistent because you look at it two minutes later, it might be 62, yeah. it might be 64, it might be, right? <clears throat> so what we're looking at is not necessarily the heartbeat, but the, the time sequence in between it. Mm. And when we become stressed in that fight or flight situation, it becomes more uniform, less variant. So um, what the autonomic nervous system is going to respond. So that's how we're measuring the autonomic nervous system. So if we're stressed, we're going to have less variability. If we're balanced, more variability. If we're really relaxed, a lot of variability. Yeah. Now, the biggest question, you know, when we start looking at this, you know, globally is like, okay, what's good, what's bad? Yeah. And we know from a disease standpoint, like cardiologists, and electrophysiologists, they're looking at heart variability from, uh, you know, a disease state. So, you know, if your heart rate variability, you have heart condition problems, usually you'd be consistently below 50 milliseconds um, all the time or whatever. And so that's what they use it for. Yeah. They don't use it for anything else. And then, you know, psychologists are using it for biofeedback, just trying to get you relaxed, breathing. We know that your breathing rate influences that uh, system. So, they use it for that. But when we start looking at all these things, what we've discovered globally, you know, different you know, entities is that it really comes down to your baseline. Mm-hmm. So whatever you are, and we say baseline. So if it's, you know, over time, maybe, you know, 14 days worth, what's your average uh, heart rate variability at rest. Um, and then if you deviate below that, then that's, you know, you want like during a competition or event yeah. training, if you're training and it lowers, that's supposed to, but it should come back to where your baseline was right. your normal average. And then in a, um, you know, sleep standpoint, when you wake up, it should be, it should be at your normal average, or you can measure it when you're sleeping and that becomes your norm. Yeah. So that's what we found. It's really your deviation from normal that determines whether it's good or bad for you. Yeah. So if you have a heart rate variability of 110 and I have a heart rate variability of 80, yours isn't better than mine. Right. If, but if I don't come back up to my 80 after a couple minutes of, you know, 
we did a few sprints and you did, you came back to your 120, you're in better shape than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Better recovered. Now, why is measuring, you know, that variability so important for athletes and, and performance? Well, um, so twofold. One is that, that overall recovery, that readiness. Right. Are you ready to train at the, at the intensity you need to? And you're not always going to be ready to train. And when you're not ready to train, you need to adjust that, um, the intensity or the volume or the load so you don't um, overtax it because then you're just going to put yourself further in debt. But at the same time, that doesn't mean just take the day off. Yeah. You know, what can you do to help pull that up so you, you so you can train harder, right? Because, you know, you can't do it. Train smarter, not harder really doesn't work. Yeah. It, it was a good concept, meaning be mindful of how you train. Don't just do things. But really, it's, you know, um, you know, you got to recover smarter so you can train harder. Mm. And that's really where you're going to you're going to get it. So some days you may have to manip, uh, manipulate your training so it's not as intense, so it matches your readiness yeah. and, and so forth. But, you know, you have to kind of it takes a little while to figure out what your readiness is. And there's technologies out there. Some are, you know, wearables that are good. Some aren't as good. But, um, you know, there's ways to look at that. And there's a lot of companies trying to, to commercial companies trying to push that. And, and help you come up with that for you. Right. And why do you believe in that that mantra so much, recover smarter so you can train harder, you know, and, and, and what advice do you have for people that, that might not be taking recovery too seriously? Well, it's going to catch up with them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, here, here's the thing, you know, you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, you don't feel those effects. You can go out, you know, get drunk and train the next day and yeah. you just laugh about it. You hit 25, you can't do that anymore all of a sudden, right? No. <laughs> uh, enough, 25 is when your body starts to, to decline. Yeah. It starts to, you know, uh, go the opposite direction in aging. And um, the the fitter you are, the, the more recovered you are, the slower that decline is. Okay? So think of about, like, uh, you know, you're at the ATM or at your bank account. All right? So you're 18 years old. You've got a million dollars, but instead of putting money back in, when you get it, you just keep taking from that million. You get 25 and all of a sudden you're at $20. Mm. All right? But if you're, if you're 18 at a million and you take out a hundred and, but you put back a hundred or put back 150, you keep that bank account. Mm. So, you know, every time you train, every time you, compete every time you uh party um you are is a cost mm. and if you're not gonna if you're not gonna put back into that that bank account at some point you're going to be depleted it's going to be bankrupt yeah yeah no kidding um so think of it as your retirement start start when you're young and your retirement's going to last you a lot longer yeah i think a lot of people don't uh, when you're young and and you know i've probably felt fallen into that trap a little bit you just feel like you can just you can battle through anything you know short sleeps you know tough weekends whatever it is 
Um, but how exactly does on a weekly basis, if you recover better, how exactly does that set you up for success come the weekends when, when, uh, when we play? Well, again, you, readiness, right? You're, you're more, you're available, right? You're ready. And if you're playing, you know, back to back, um, especially, you know, the collegiate athletes, of, you know, Friday, Saturday schedule, you know, are you going to be just as ready Saturday after a Friday night? Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the more you do, the more you invest in the, you know, during the week, you can, you can handle those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll give you an example um, on the tactical side that, that might bring it home a little bit better is, listen, you, you know, hey, before, we, before you're going to train or work out or whatever, we're going to warm up, right? We're going to go do dynamic warm up, yeah. do all these things, stretch, whatever, right? Because if you don't, you know, you have this, you know, fear of like, if you don't, you're going to get hurt or you're not going to be able to perform. But now let, let me give you a different scenario. You're flying in a helicopter for three, four hours with all your tactical gear and you're cramped. There's no seats. You're just cramped up. And then it lands. You have to go out. And as soon as you hit it, you're, you're working. Yeah. They didn't do dynamic warm They didn't stretch. They didn't do all this stuff. All right. And they don't get hurt. It, musculoskeletal, they don't get hurt. Mm. But why? Well, it's it's because of the prep they did. They were all they were ready during the week. Mm. But when they were in that situation, they couldn't do those things. It, it didn't impact them as much as it would if they never prepped for it and try to do those things. They probably have a higher rate of injury. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not to say that that stuff's not good. It's just when it doesn't happen. If you if you plan and, and trained and recovered properly, it won't be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can touch on a bit uh, on the idea, you know, and we talked about this prior to the recording, um, but we need to listen to our bodies more. And, and you mentioned that we need to be reading the body and how we feel day to day after hard work. We need to check how the body's responding and maybe change our calendar and our schedule based on how we feel a bit, you know. Why is that exactly, and, and what are some of the benefits and, and the drawdowns from, from doing that? Well, I mean, so, you know, benefits, you know, obviously it gets you into, um, it's personalized, right? Yeah. Every individual is different. So when, when we give you this one plan fits all, some people get no work, some people get a lot of overwork, and some people get just the right amount. So, you know, when we look at this, it's, it's, you get, you need to listen to your body, but you have to be honest, right? It's a mindset. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't feel like training versus my body's not ready to train are two mm-hmm. different things. <laughs> so you still have to pull yourself up by the bootstrap. You still have to go and do it. Yeah. You still have to be there. Right. So it's a mindset that has to change on what it takes to be a, a performer and what it takes to be an elite performer. Yeah. Um, so there's times that it's not always going to be fun. Right. But at the same time, I've got to listen to my body. So I've got to be able to manipulate and modulate some things. And it may be timing, you know, time of day and so forth that you have control of. The downside is you don't always have control of that. So if, you know, where, where I really, um, my eyes were really opened up is when I went to the military side, it's like, 
yeah, this is all great. This says this, this says that, but I still got to go out the door. I got a mission. Yeah. So I'm gone whether I'm red, green, or yellow. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. Then what, you know, you can't, they have to go, they have to do this. They have to do that. Yeah. We can't dictate what time they can do it. So, that's where it comes. it's very important that the time that you do control that you 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 get into that mindset of I have to pay back the the cost of doing business mm. and that's sleep recovery even nutrition okay one of those things alone isn't really going to be like you know if you have good nutrition getting better nutrition isn't, isn't going to be significant yeah but if you don't if you if, but if you don't stay on task with that good nutrition you're going to fall behind and those other things won't be as effective. Right. And then, you know, and so forth. So you, if you sleep, if you try and get better sleep, but you don't want to address your nutrition, you're probably not going to be able to improve your sleep right. um, or recovery, you know, so every, every piece is as important, you know, to, to, to the, to the puzzle. So if, if you're going to, if you can control your calendar, you want to control it where it's, benefit for you to be ready to perform at competition whenever that competition is mm-hmm. and for people maybe looking to, to implement this better into their summer programs or, or season routines you know what exactly should they be looking for and and what exactly should they be doing when they feel a certain way well i think you know again the 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 universal things that are available to people the what you know you don't need to invest in this or that or buy this or buy that because not everybody has the resources yeah. to do that you know you you can get yourself into a routine of you know every time after you know training whether it's you know your whatever type of training it is it doesn't matter but in the summertime okay at the end you know the the, the trainer or the coach or the strength coach might have recovery stuff for you um, but at home, you should still carve out some time and say, okay, I'm going to do my own personal recovery. So I'm going to, you know, close my eyes and meditate or I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to focus on my breathing in and breathing out. Just regulating your breathing. Do that for just 20 minutes is going to help reset you for the next stage. Wow. Um, you know, you can, you know, if you have resources, availability, go to, you know, right now is not a great time for, you know, in the pandemic, yeah. but, you know, but they have these, you know, float centers or cryo centers. You can take advantage of those, but you don't substitute it for something, right? You still yeah. go home, carve out your own time, even if you did it with the, the strength coach or the trainer or the physio, but still carve out your own time where you, you're by yourself for 20 minutes and you can download a free app like uh, Breathe to Relax or whatever yeah. to help you pace your breathing. And you get down to six, seven breaths per minute. Do that for twenty minutes. You will reset yourself, regardless. Mm. Very cool. I like that. I uh, some other apps for some people listening are like uh, Calm or Headspace. Yes, very good. Is uh, another one that I use as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's 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 crazy. I haven't heard many people talk about it uh, on the recovery side. It's typically discussed and used as a tool to train focus, right? Right. And, and it's, but it's the same concept, yeah. right? For you to be focused and attention, we need to, we need to bring into a mindfulness state, you know, in that moment. So 
as I mentioned earlier, um, respiration or breathing heavily influences your autonomic nervous system mm. and your heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. So by, by bringing, again, you're in control of your own physiology. So when things are going and all of a sudden, like, oh my God, this is, you know, it's getting chaotic. Like if you're a goaltender, you took on this huge barrage and then <laughs> now it's down the other end. You're, you're just trying to say, okay, well, you know, all right, I just get my mindset. If you just stop and just do a few quick, you know, pace breathing, you'll automatically reset yourself for that next uh, flurry. There you go. Uh, it's something you can do in real time, yeah. and it's something you can do post where you can reset yourself. Yeah. And it's free. Yeah. Well, there's a little there's a little hack for everybody right there. <laughs> um, Mark, do you have any last words of advice for everyone listening that you feel passionate about? Well, I, I do. I mean. The biggest thing I think is, is, you know, like I said before, there's a cost of doing business. There's a cost when you train, there's a cost when you party, there's a cost when you do any physical activity, there's a cost of doing no activity. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to pay back that, that cost. And uh, if you do, it will give you more longevity. Because even if you're not a professional athlete, if you're a high school uh, athlete or if you're uh, just a recreational amateur athlete, like last thing you want to do is, uh, you know, retire as a recreational athlete at 25, right? You want to be able to do activities, play with your kids when you get older yeah. and, and be active. The cost is now you got to put it put away for that retirement when you're in your teens. Mm. That would be my biggest advice. And then again, I'm going to go back to, you know, the brain's perception is your body's reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for coming on the show, man. It's, uh, this was an absolutely fire conversation. It was, it's been so awesome having you on and it was a pleasure to meet you. I love talking about sport, sport science stuff in particular. It really sparks a keen interest in me as I know there's, there's areas where a lot of other people aren't looking really that, you know, I can get an edge on that. We can sort of provide my community a bit of an edge. And that's exactly why I brought you, you know, on here today to enlighten everyone on recovery and how you can become more elite athletes. Right. So can you just let my audience know where they can find you online? Well, um, you know, I really don't have an online presence. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, selling anything or, yeah. or anything like that. So, um, so unfortunately, uh, I don't, um, I mean, you can pass along my, contact information of my uh my email and, and so forth if people want to get in touch with me yeah but uh you know for the most part i mean if you check out you know what they're doing at the rockefeller neuroscience uh institutes you know at west virginia university and their medical school uh, you know that that would be something uh, they're doing some great stuff out there uh, they're amazing group to work with i'm blessed to be able to work with them yeah so check them out yeah well mark is uh is a, he's one of those heroes that doesn't wear a cape and uh mark your your work is uh you know i think undervalued really um but i'll include uh you know his email in the show notes and if you guys have any more questions you can reach out to him um but mark is one of the leading sports scientists in, in north america if not the world on on sleep and recovery and definitely consider adding in more recovery into your routines uh, and, and listen to this episode back if you need to. Maybe somewhere down the road we'll have you back on the show, man, because I know you'll be be continuing with your work if that's something that interests you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really appreciate you having me here, and and I just want to you know thank 
thank your audience for, for listening to me. And then I want to thank all the, the folks that I work with and collaborate with who actually are really the brains behind what I do at the, you know, both at the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, the DOD and, and so forth. Some great, great people out there. Right on. Well, I'm grateful for you coming on, Mark. You take care and we'll chat soon, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode, guys. If you liked what you heard today, make sure to hit that subscribe button as we have tons of amazing guests lined up ready to come onto the show in the next few months. Make sure to tune in next week and every Tuesday from now on at 8 a.m. as I have another active goaltender coming on the show, Makalida. Three-time ECAC champion with Cornell University. Uh, We just had Ben Sire on the show, but this is going to be a great follow-up to just a championship duo. You won't want to miss this one, so make sure to tune back next week. Without further ado, here are the giveaway details for the NeuroTracker X subscription we're giving away. To enter the giveaway, if you're an Apple user, simply go to the Apple Podcast app on your phone and leave us a written review and rating. And if you're an Android user, you can also download iTunes onto your computer, search the show, and leave a written review and rating on there as well. Once you leave a review of the podcast, take a screenshot of it and either email it to goaliehacks at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram with your screenshot and your full name. If you guys are also interested in getting started with the product, feel free to hit me up either by email or Instagram direct messages to get more details. Get excited, guys. Great things ahead. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I'll see you next week. I am to risk it all.